listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're going to start a small Easter series for us as a church. I've called it Disruptive Conjunctions. And I, before we get into the actual conversation of what all this means, I just want to start off by simply defining this idea of disruptive and this idea of conjunction. Disruptive is really defined in the dictionary as something very simple. Causing or tending to cause or caused by a disruption. It's real simple. Conjunction is a, gram, a grammatical term. It's a, any member of a small class of words distinguished in many languages by their function as connectors between words, phrases or clauses or sentences such as as, and, because, but, however. Conjunction also means the act of conjoining or combining. So over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to look at three psalms that deal and that invite us into the reality of this disruptive conjunction kind of life and what God has done and what He has pursued in His own disruptive conjunctions. Before we do that, I want to tell you about Amy. Amy is a 35-year-old woman with Down syndrome, and each Sunday I would take my place in the pew across the aisle just two rows up from her. Often she could be found smiling and her pew singing loudly her songs to God. And yet there were times Amy could be found sitting in her pews, tears streaming down her face, sobbing before God. And it was not hard to imagine why Amy was sobbing and the reasons for her tears. She lived her life largely misunderstood always feeling out of place. It was the mind of a young child in a 35-year-old body was sometimes just more than her heart could grasp. Life was unfair to Amy, and she did not ask for 47 chromosomes instead of 46. She did not choose for her words to come out slightly slurred and oftentimes indecipherable. She did not want the loneliness that was dealt her. She wanted friends, and she wanted a boyfriend. She's 47 now, she's not had many friends, and she's never had a boyfriend. She liked boys. Amy did not ask for the failing health and weakening body that accompanied her Down syndrome. See, I knew Amy. The unfairness of life was openly heavier on some days, I suppose, more than others. And on these Sundays, it was not hard to imagine the reason for her tears, But of course, I do not know what Amy was thinking as she sat there in her pew sobbing before God. As I often remember Amy, I would wonder if she might have been reciting her own psalm. Her own psalm before God, a psalm much like the one we read this morning. See, the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 31, is a complaint for God. It's a complaint before him about the experiences of deep suffering and social isolation and aloneness. It's a plea for God to show up in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the confusion that seemed to envelop the psalmist and that on these Sundays seemed to envelop Amy. And so I would imagine Amy owned this psalm. And she cries out, Be gracious to me, Lord. Because I am in distress, my eyes waste away from grief, my whole being as well. Indeed, my life is consumed with grief, and my years with groaning. My strength has failed. 
because of my affliction and my bones waste away. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and a horror to my neighbors. I am dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. I am forgotten, gone from memory, like a dead person, like broken pottery. I've heard the gossip of many, terrors on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. If that is what she is saying, if, if that is what Amy is saying, there is no denial for her grief. There's no denial of her sorrow. It is unconstrained honesty. Bert, if you'll go back to the previous slide, please. It is unconstrained honesty. It is a, a candid and genuine appeal to the throne of mercy as she cries out in the very beginning of the song, Be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. And then out of this cry for mercy is this long complaint of life. See, we fall into the trap to believe that we're not allowed to complain to holy God about an unholy world. But Amy, Amy did. I think the psalm gives Amy a voice as she sits there weeping in her pew before God. I, I think this complaint not only gives her a voice, I think it gives a voice to the world. I think it gives a voice to our world and all its confusion and all its anxiety and at times even outrage against everything that threatens our, our peace, or our security, or our comfort, or our joy. See, we live in a world where, as the psalmist said, terror is on every side, where grief is consuming and the days are filled with groaning and strength is often waning. It's a world where people die from a lack of food or clean water. It's a world where children are recruited to fight wars not of their own making, where young women are kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery. It is a world where we just hear the cries and the groaning and we see the terror. And, and it's a world that we often think is far from us, yet if this complaint carries on long enough, we will discover that in our entitled and privileged lives, even we can feel it too. We feel this world. We feel this world every day. We feel it especially even on a Palm Sunday. We, we feel the terror and the grief and the confusion and anxiety. We feel it in the children that are abandoned by their parents simply because they were not wanted. We feel it in the man who loses his job and discovers that he is only days away from trading in his home and warm bed for a bridge overpass and cold dirt floor. We feel it in the 40-year-old woman, mother of three, diagnosed with inoperable cancer. We feel it in our disappointment with those with whom we've entrusted our lives and our hearts, but yet have simply betrayed us. We feel it in the eyes of a mother and child who wave goodbye to their daddy and father. It's husband, she leaves and sets off for war. We feel it in the strain of our comforts and our finances high gas prices. We feel it in the outrage of political commentary and discourse that just seeks to blame someone, anyone other than ourselves for our troubles. We, we feel it in the over 200 children in the Williamsburg-James City County School District who go to school every day and go home homeless. We feel it in the 10 young girls between the ages of 16 and 18 who were sold into sexual slavery in McLean, Virginia. We feel it all around us in almost every area of our lives, public and private. We feel the terror and the grief and the confusion. This psalm, Amy's psalm, is a psalm for the world. 
It's a complaint. It's a complaint that speaks to the pain and the grief and the sorrow. And so this complaint really gives us a voice. It gives Amy a voice. It gives the world a voice. But then when we look a little closer at the psalm, this prayer of complaint that Amy cries out to God seems to have a a slight turn to it. It's an unexpected turn. Right in the middle of this complaint, you find a, a big disruptive conjunction. In verse 14, you find the word, but. It's as though the complaint has been interrupted and the psalmist pauses for a a completely different reality, a reality even greater than the complaint that that the psalmist is crying out. And so you hear Amy and she, she says, but, but I trust in you, Lord. But I say you are my God. But the course of my life is in your hands. But show favor to your servant. Save me by your faithful faithful love. You see this word but that becomes this beautiful disruptive conjunction that boldly interrupts the complaint and sets Amy's mind to a different truth and puts the complaint even in its proper place. But you notice the word but, this disruptive conjunction, it doesn't deny the pain. It doesn't deny the sorrow. It doesn't explain it away. It embraces the grief. It embraces the sorrow. It embraces the anxiety. It embraces the unconstrained honesty, but it merely interrupts the complaint and turns Amy's eyes away and unto the one who she says her life is in his hands. See, the way I see it, there are two kinds of people in this world. Or better yet, you could say we live our lives every day choosing who we want to be, one of two people. There's a person who, like the psalmist, lays out the complaint before God, but carries on through the conjunction. The one who lives life from the disruption that this conjunction has caused and the reality that has been jerked back into their life. See, this is the person who lives with a view of hope and strength that things can change, where the strength that is found or that needs to be found is actually possible. See, like the psalmist, Amy knows that even in her tears, confusion, anxiety, and grief, that there is hope. That God is present, even in the complaint. And if He's present, then He's always moving. And if God is moving, and He's the Almighty God that holds her life within His hands, then He's an Almighty God who can still give her sobbing heart rest. See, then there's the other kind of person. There's the person whose life stops at verse 13. There is no disruptive conjunction. There is no but. There's just complaint. They carry on without the conjunction and the prayer simply stops here. And at that point, that person is all alone. Because there's no hope for change or restoration. No longer do you merely own the complaint. Now the complaint owns you. It begins to define life as you know it. So I just wanted to take a moment this Palm Sunday and and just stop and consider what it means to pray the disruptive conjunction. To pray the word, but. 
in reverence to a God who is far greater than you and me. Far greater. See, because the conjunction, when you, when you see the word but in this psalm in the middle of the complaint, it becomes a recognition that I cannot and do not possess the power to change the things in my life. And so I call upon the one who can. See, the disruptive conjunction becomes a, a recognition that I am not the end-all, be-all in this world. That contrary to my popular belief, the world doesn't actually revolve around me. See, the disruptive conjunction becomes an awakening of the soul and the mind and the heart that there actually is hope and that there's, there's promise of restoration and that there's potential for change even in a world where terror surrounds. It, the word but demonstrates a reliance upon the God who is the creator of all things and who happens to know me best and love me most than anyone else in the world. The disruptive conjunction, but, becomes a comfort. Becomes a comfort of assurance that there is something greater going on even now as I speak all around me in this world because God sits on the throne of Jesus Christ because He came through the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey. See, the word but becomes almost in itself a word of sweet surrender, a word of repentance. A world, a word that cries out for something greater. But I trust in you, Lord, which is to say that my life is within your hands and I have trusted my soul to you, so certainly I can trust my life to you. But I say you are my God, which is to say simply that, that I know you have an agenda and that agenda may not be the agenda of my own, but I know that you know me best and you love me most. So naturally, the course of my life is in your hands. But show your favor. Show your favor to your servant. Save me by your faithful love. Faithful love. It is God's faithful love. His hased in the Hebrew that the psalmist cries out to for hope. Faithful love. Hased. Such a beautiful word in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word that's often transliterated loving kindness or steadfast love or faithful love in our English Bibles. But the reality of it is, these words, faithful love, steadfast love, uh, kindness, loving kindness, it, it fails to capture the, the, the meaning of hesed in the mind of the Hebrew. And particularly even here, the psalmist, when you work out this word in all of Hebrew Scripture, you find that this word is the word that God's people call out to in the moment of their greatest distress, in the moment of their greatest anxiety, in the depths of their depression depraved sin. They call out to a God who has said, who is faithful in love. And in this, in this word said, is tied to it four deep, deep truths of the, of the Hebrew psalmist. It's this idea that God has faithful mercy, that he will not give us what we deserve because of his enduring loving kindness and because of the promise he made to us despite us. And this is said is wrapped in truth, something that will not and cannot and does not change, no matter how much the terror surrounds us. Nothing changes God's said. See, because said is not rooted in the actions of God's people. 
God's faithful love, according to the Hebrew mind, according to the psalmist, according to Amy, is not something that's rooted in one's performance. It's not something that is rooted in one's even obedience. It is not something that is rooted in one's even reverence. This idea of God's has said is just based upon his character and his character alone. And as a matter of fact, in the Hebrew scriptures, has said seems as though it is rooted in the very attributes of God. And so they call out to God in his faithful love, trusting that despite their feelings and their emotions, despite the brokenness of this world, despite what they have done or what they have not done, that God will look down upon them in mercy and in loving kindness. And based on his promise to them, he will bathe them in the truth and the reality of his presence. And so they call out to God's faithful love. See, the New Testament has a word for said. It's called Grace. And in the New Testament, that's a word closest to it. It's this idea that God will, even in the midst of our complaint, and even in the midst of a broken world, even in the midst of Amy's tears, will do for her what she could never do for herself. That he will look down into our lives and he will enter into our pain and enter into our confusion and do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so we have the freedom to complain, but we have the freedom to embrace the disruptive conjunction because of grace. See, for us, and because of Palm Sunday, our prayers do not end at verse 13. We pray through the disruptive conjunction. No matter where we are, we can cry and we can say, but you are God. I'm not. And you look on me with said, And you cover me in grace. It's the beauty of this disruptive conjunction which we really see in our Savior as he's in the garden. As he's there just only the day before he's on the cross. As he's there the night his friend betrays him. As he's there the night he is feeling social isolation as his disciples fall asleep. On the night that he feels confusion anxiety on the night where scripture says that he was sweating and in so much stress and, and his tears were it was all as if it were drops of blood Matthew says it this way in chapter 26 verse 36 and Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane and he said sit here while I go over there to pray and he took Peter James and John and he became anguished and distressed and those words just don't even capture the emotion that the writer is trying to capture here and he told them my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me and he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground praying my father if it's possible let this cup of suffering be taken away from me but want your will to be done, not mine. And he prays this three times. But becomes this disruptive conjunction that out of Jesus and his, and his great love for us, he becomes willing to even drink his own cup of sorrow. In verse 39, we see a disruptive conjunction that led to a much greater disruptive conjunction in the history of this world. Except this disruptive conjunction isn't a word. It is a cross. 
Because in the cross, God enters into this broken world and into all of our complaints and all of our sins, and he disrupts it right there. It's like the cross just drops out of the heavens, and it changes everything. It sets it all on a different course. And it is a disruptive conjunction because on the cross, God joins our sin with Jesus' perfect life. God and Jesus Christ joins his righteousness to our sinful state. On the cross, our death becomes His death. And it is, it is joined together so that something can be changed. It is as Paul said, as he wrote to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. We were in a pitiable state. And we were content to live this way. Many of us were just going along our lives, living for ourselves. We're the king of our own castles. We're, we're living life how we want to live. We're choosing the choices that we want to make. We're, we're pursuing success, not God. We're pursuing all of these different things that lead us away from the cross. And, and so Paul comes and he says, for when we were living this way, we were, we were foolish and disobedient, deceived and slaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice, hateful, hateful envy, detesting one another, verse 4, but... I love it. He says, but, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, but when God crashed into our filthy, broken, sinful lives out of His love for us, but He saved us not by works of righteousness that He had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So we come back to Amy's song. It's not hard to imagine the reason for her tears. But it was not hard to imagine the reason for her smiles when she sang her praises to God on some Sundays too. She would say, I may be in distress with my eyes wasting away from grief, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved me. Indeed, my life may be consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My strength may be failing because of my affliction. My bones may be wasting away, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved me. I may be ridiculed by all my adversaries and a horror to my neighbors. I may try out high school and they may just make fun of me and so I will not even have the life of a, a normal teenager. I may be degraded. I may be dreaded by my acquaintances and friends and people may run from me. I may feel forgotten. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. He saved me. So we do not have to stop our psalm of complaint at verse 13, church. We can carry on through the conjunction. See, so we can because of Palm Sunday. We can because we know where Palm Sunday was going. We can because when this messianic king was on this donkey, we knew and we know that he indeed was the king. 
And that if he's the king of Israel, he's the king of the world. And if he's the king of the world, then we can cry out, but I know my life is in your hands, but I know that you will have favor on me, your servant, because of your faithful love, but I trust in you. And this is the hope that leads us to Easter. Because before we have Easter, we have to witness God's, arguably his greatest disruptive conjunction in the cross. And how the cross actually joins humanity back to him. See, there's a truth of this disruptive conjunction. And it's twofold. Consider what it means to live life from this disruptive conjunction. Consider what it means to pray the conjunction, but. And consider that in light of the disruptive conjunction that there really are no words to describe. The cross. It's because the truth of this is the truth every day. No matter the grief, no matter the anxiety, no matter the confusion, no matter the pain, no matter the guilt, no matter the pride, no matter the selfishness, God can disrupt all of that and turn it anew in the cross. He can change all of that and give new life in the cross. He can give forgiveness and hope and restoration and change in the cross. If you're here today, and we, we have some people here even for the first time, but we have people in our family who are here every week, there's something you've got to know about the disruptive conjunction, about Palm Sunday. It's really simple. There's always hope. As long as there's Jesus, there's always hope. There's always hope for change. There's always hope that that person you love will turn their eyes to God. There's always hope for that person you love will simply repent and come back to God. There's always hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. Let God and the cross disrupt your complaint this morning. Don't deny it. Don't explain it away. But just move through and allow your prayers move from this disruptive conjunction of, but I trust in you because you are my healer. Let's pray.